from a moral perspective, there might be something to be said for insurance fraud. Welcome back to the Think Like the Test podcast. I am Ben Caldwell. With me is Carrie Weta. Hey there. And Carrie, I'm interested in knowing today about your moral framework. When you are thinking about whether some action, something that you might do is right or wrong, how do you weigh that out? How do you determine whether I'm I'm doing the right thing here? <laughs> was this something I was supposed to have come up with just as like a human? <laughs> like, I feel like I should have this. <laughs> I feel like I should have a really good answer. And I don't. Um, I can I can make it multiple choice if that would make it a little bit. That'd easier. be great. That'd be great. OK, so there are some folks and, and any listeners who have taken a like moral philosophy class please know that what you're about to hear is horrible blasphemy and is going to be ridiculously reductive of all of these philosophies. So my apologies. I know that this runs deeper than this. I'm just summarizing for our purposes here. But there is one perspective that we might call a virtue ethics approach, where if you're thinking about whether something is good or not good, you look at the, the totality of the situation. So uh, the motivations of the person, the action itself, and how well it turned out. And you're going to sort of reflect on, does this seem to suggest that the person who engages in the behavior is, is a good person or not a good person? So it's more like totality of context. And what does this say about the person? There is the deontological approach. And somebody who follows a deontological approach is largely going to focus on following the rules. Uh, these are folks who tend to have faith in institutions and will assume that if something is the way it is, it, it must be that way for a reason. Even if I don't necessarily understand that reason, I'm still going to follow the rule. That's the kind of person who you know comes up to a four-way stop sign in a rural area, there's no traffic around, and they stop at the stop sign anyway, right? And then lastly, you've got your consequentialists, uh, the folks who are going to determine right and wrong, mostly on the basis of how it turns out. Like, did this work to the benefit that was intended or anticipated? Did it do the most good for the most people possible in that circumstance? So if that's your multiple choice, A yeah. being virtue ethics, B is deontology, and C is consequentialism, which of those resonates most for you? I think I'm a virtue person. Virtue ethicist? This becomes relevant when you're planning to take a law and ethics exam. And we've talked about this issue of like, who do you think of yourself as mm -hmm. when you're taking a test? Do you think of it as, okay, what would I carry do here? Or what is the right thing to do here? If you think about what is the right thing to do, then you've got to have a conceptualization of like, what makes something right? Is it simply adherence to the rules? Is it, are you doing good for somebody? Is it more contextual in nature? And each one of those has strength and validity to it. It's not that, that any of those viewpoints are better or worse than any others. For our practice question today, what moral framework you come from would probably influence what you would actually do in this situation. Oh, wow. Okay. Your client has health insurance. 
but the insurance carrier is refusing to cover the client's therapy because she is seeing you for couple therapy and does not, in your assessment, qualify for a diagnosis of mental illness. You should do what? And before I give the options here, I'll say this comes from an older edition of the book that we put out a few years ago, Preparing for the California Clinical Social Work Law and Ethics Exam. We currently have a 2023 edition of that book. This question is not in there because it's a retired question. You should A, assess the client's ability to advocate on her own behalf with the insurance company. B, offer to include an insurance diagnosis on the client's paperwork to facilitate coverage. C, work with the client to develop an alternative plan for payment. Or D, discontinue therapy. Okay, I, I forget which camp this puts me in, but what Carrie would do is is commit insurance fraud and would do B. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> BBS, if you're listening, that's a joke, um, but it's not really. So, okay, so that it's obviously not B um, because you can't commit commit insurance fraud. Uh, so you cannot offer to include an insurance diagnosis on the client's paperwork to facilitate coverage if you do not, in your professional opinion, think that this client qualifies for a diagnosis. Um, so let me ask, though. Yeah. You're saying I'm going to go ahead and and put a diagnosis there anyway. And when I teach this in workshops, I talk with people who come from a consequentialist perspective, and I will, I'll talk very empathetically about how you are, you're trying to do good. You're trying to make sure that your client can get coverage so that they can afford a therapy that they might not be able to afford otherwise. You're, mm -hmm. you're trying to facilitate access to care. Yes. And I might even argue that you are doing a moral good by doing so. And that's a consequentialist kind of perspective, which a lot of therapists adhere to. How can I do good in the world? That is, in, in the strictest technical sense, insurance fraud. And yeah. so I usually get a, a knowing laugh from the consequentialists in the crowd when I make note of that. And I tell them I'm not going to report them to the BBS for having just confessed to me that that's Thank exactly <laughs> the thing that they would do. Right. But this does speak to, right, you're saying, I can't do that. That can't possibly be the right answer even though we all know, agree, and laugh about the fact that that might get this client help that they wouldn't otherwise get. Right. Yes. So for the purposes of this test, and I'm, I'm asking a bit of a rhetorical question, am I not supposed to be focused on doing good? I, I think that you're supposed to be focused on doing good according to uh, the test maker. <laughs> um, I'm going to assume that the test maker uh, does not have a fundamental problem with um, uh, how we do health insurance in this in this country and uh, then therefore feels like it's a perfectly fine and morally good thing to commit insurance fraud against an insurance company. <laughs> So they're probably not focused on how can I be the most helpful to this client, right? If, if this is a test of uh, legal and ethical adherence, they're probably going to be more deontological in their approach, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think that the test maker probably has a very uh, good reason why not committing fraud is the morally right thing to do. 
I think. You are friendlier than I. Really? Well, because I just, I, I, this is not meant to speak to the morals of exam developers. It's, it's more like the function of the test. Yeah. So I, I think the test is not meant to be a moral arbiter or, or a moral assessment. It's not about trying to do good. It's okay. about, can you apply knowledge of the rules? And I think that's a different question. That makes a lot of sense. Right. Right. And and at, at its core, yeah, that's why I know it's wrong is because it's against the rules. Yeah, it's against the rules to commit insurance fraud. Right. And so you're not going to commit insurance fraud, even though there is a part of you that recognizes that there might be some situations where from a moral perspective, there might be something to be said for insurance fraud. Right. Um, okay. So, but we've agreed that I'm I'm correct so far in ruling out B. You are correct so far in ruling out Great. B. Yes. Okay, good. Um, okay. So um I would think that right now then the options are, since I can't commit fraud, uh, the options are my client could end therapy because she can't afford it, uh, or she could continue to do therapy but pay out of pocket. Okay. Um, I think that those are the options. Uh, I could also um, offer a sliding scale. I could uh, adjust my own rate. Um, that would be, I think, okay to do if I wanted to. You could. Um, that would also probably be a, a moral good in the world. Right, right. So, so we have options. So, okay, I should. Assess the client's ability to advocate on her own behalf with the insurance company. Um, I, I guess that's a good thing to do. I mean, like I, I could, uh, you know, inform her if she, if she doesn't know that perhaps she could pursue getting a prior authorization um, from the insurance company, which uh, would mean, you know, kind of like an exception that even though te technically the insurance company doesn't usually uh, cover it, she could advocate on her own behalf to say this should be covered um so I, I that's a that's something i could do um work with the client to develop an alternative plan uh for payment so that that would be that would be that either doing private pay or a, a sliding scale private pay um would fall under there i think so so that's certainly appropriate um discontinue therapy so now I'm thinking, like, look, the one that makes that seems like the the easiest is assess the client's ability to advocate on her own behalf of the insurance company. Um, because I could start there and see if that's something she wants to pursue. Work with the client to develop an alternative plan for payment. Oh, wait, now I'm thinking, oh, gosh, see, now we're getting into analyzing, like, the actual words that this is saying. Um, so she has, she is seeing you for couple therapy. Maybe it's a kind of thing where we've been submitting these claims and I'm thinking I'm going to get reimbursed, but I'm not now. And so technically, I suppose that means this client has some sort of a balance because, uh, we did the therapy sessions and now she's finding out it's not being covered. So if that's the case, if we're not talking about future treatment, 
then I think working with a client to develop an alternative plan for payment might be what I should do because that gives me as the therapist an option to, um, I could forgive it if I, if I wanted to, um, I could say, you know, it was up to the client to decide to figure out like what was covered and what wasn't under her insurance. And so I feel okay charging what I'm, you know, owed for the the sessions that have already happened. So I think that as a, as a therapist, I think I, I can have the option to set up a payment plan uh, for the client if I want to do that. Um, I don't think, I'm going to say, I don't think that discontinue therapy is like what I should do in this situation okay. um, because that's not, yeah, that, that doesn't make sense. Um, well, for I, ethics questions anyway, discontinue therapy is, it's sometimes a valid option, but it's usually not the first choice. It's usually yeah. something you would go to after having taken some other steps to make sure crisis needs are met, to see if there's some way of continuing the relationship. I don't want to say that as an absolute thing, because there are times when it's appropriate to discontinue therapy. But in a lot of instances, discontinue therapy is presented as an option when really it would be like your third or fourth option if other stuff fails. Yeah, that that makes all the sense in the world. Um, okay, so I've struck out two. I am going to say, I think A is something that like would be great to do, um, but I'm not sure I should do it. Uh, so let's go with C, work with the client to develop an alternative plan for payment. How confident are you scale of one to 10? Like a six and a half or a seven. That's enough to get you there. C is correct. <laughs> Work with the client to develop an alternative plan for payment. And alternative <laughs> just means alternative to insurance. So you're yeah. right to think about this in terms of like, I could forgive the balance. I could put them on a payment plan. We could go to less frequent sessions. I could reduce their fee. You know, all of those are possibilities. It's just alternative to what we thought was going to happen, which was insurance. So that works well. Discontinue therapy isn't necessary yet. We might come to find that that's the only viable option. But the first thing that you would do is work with the client to develop an alternative plan for payment. And just as to option A here, assess the client's ability to advocate on her own behalf with the insurance company. There are plenty of situations where that's appropriate. If insurance is denying coverage for something that they typically should and would cover. In this instance, the therapist does not believe that a diagnosis is present. And insurance providers, at least in California, I assume it's this way in other places as well, they're not obligated to pay when there isn't a diagnosis present. It's medical yeah. necessity. Right. And so in a situation where there isn't medical necessity, and there doesn't seem to be argument about that in the question, the client's ability to advocate on their own behalf with the insurer is irrelevant. They could be great or terrible at that. It's not going to make any difference in terms of changing the medical necessity rules for them to get coverage. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. So I asked at the beginning what your moral framework is. And you talked about there might be a difference between what you would do in practice versus what you know the right answer for exam purposes to be. Yep. And that gets me thinking about what it is that the exams are really trying to assess. If they're trying to assess whether you, Carrie, are a safe practitioner, whether you should be allowed to practice independently, 
then it's interesting that, you know, I have the language in this question as your client. I talk about you. The exams typically will talk about an MFT, a counselor, a social worker. They don't put it in terms of you because they're wanting to assess your, I, I guess, because they're wanting to assess your knowledge of the right thing to do as opposed to thinking about it through your own moral framework. But if the tests want to know whether you, carry are safe for practice, shouldn't it be through the lens of your moral framework? I don't have an answer to that. I think it's an interesting question. Like, why are we saying Joe or Jane therapist as opposed to using the language of you? Yeah. I, I mean, like, not even that, not even just the language, but like, yeah, this test is not going to change what I would actually do in practice. So like, what's the point if, if I know the, if I know the answer and I know the rule and I can answer it on the test, but I have no intention of doing that in actual practice, uh, then what is the test even assessing? Well, it seems like it's assessing someone's ability to give the right book answer mm -hmm. fully divorced from what they personally might actually do. Right. Absolutely. I mean, it goes back to the stop sign. Like, if you ask me on the driving test, I'm be like, obviously, you stop at the stop sign whenever you can, then you have to wait three seconds before you can go again. But I would not do that. If I was in a rural area, there was no one coming, there was no chance I was going to get a ticket, and I wasn't going to hit anybody, I'd go through the stop sign. Do you always talk that way on tests? Yeah, always. Why is that weird? <laughs> is that, you don't? <laughs> No, I I approach <laughs> tests much more authoritatively, and I get offended when I get a question wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, I just try to pull out my best goody two-shoes. And so I am not incorrect. <laughs> You're incorrect. The test is incorrect. <laughs> That's self-righteous anger. That's how you approach it. <laughs> 100 percent yeah. Right. On that note, please check out all of our exam prep programs at bencaldwelllabs.com. We will see you next time.